We're in a series called Preparing for Promotion, and we're studying the life of David. We're going from the, the shepherd's fields to when the crown got put on his head, and there was a process. There was things that needed to go on, things that needed to happen, um, things that need, he needed to do, areas he needed to grow in, things that needed to happen in his heart. And so we have a memory verse. It's Psalm 75, verse 7. Does everybody see the memory verse? Okay, good. Now I'm going to remove it, and you're going to say it very straight. You're going you're to read it as if, as if you are, um, you're, you're trying to shout at your 94-year-old grandma across the street, okay? She's about to walk into the street. A bus is coming. She's 94, and she can't hear you, okay? And here's what you're going to say to her. Psalm 75-7, ready, go. Promotion does not come from the north, south, east, or west, but God puts one down and lifts up another. Man, isn't this so exciting? One of the things we can see from this is if God wanted your um, authority figure to be put down, he put him down or her down. If God wanted to lift you up, he would lift. And listen, he does want to do this, but we're not ready sometimes. And we think we are. Here's what's so interesting. Anytime we want something, we automatically think we're ready for it. As soon as this desire comes in us to be promoted in our relationship, in our finances, in our job, and whatever, we think we're ready as soon as we want it. We think, oh, I'm ready because I thought about it and I want it, I'm ready. But God knows what's best and there's a process. And last week we were talking about in 1 Samuel 24, the beginning of that passage, when the first king of Israel was, you know, over in the cave, and then David was behind him, and David's like, something smells, and he walks up there, and King Saul is squatting, and the second king of Israel is about to shank him from behind. Now, the word shank is a prison term for those of you that have never been to jail. I'll teach you about this. Shank is whenever you take a, like, a, like, a, like a toothbrush and you file it down to a knife and you stab somebody in the back when they're in the urinals. And that's exactly what was taking place with the first king and the second king of Israel. Now, until I turn 40 years old, I can make as many jokes about things like this as I want to. And I expect y'all to laugh and enjoy every minute of it. Because we may never come to this passage ever again when the first king of Israel is sitting on the can. And the second king of Israel is contemplating killing a man while he's in the most vulnerable position that any man could ever be in. And just as soon as David was going up to kill him, he decided to cut a piece of his robe off. And the Bible says in verse 5 that his heart and his conscience bothered him so bad when that happened. And here's why. We never know what's in our heart until an opportunity arises. You never know. You can say all day long, I would never do this if I were them. I would never act that way if I was in that position. I would never go through that door if that opened up before me. I know that's wrong. Man, we never, 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 never know what we would do until we're in that position of that person. That's why it's so wrong for us to judge people and criticize other people because we never know what we do ever. And when David went to cut off the piece of Saul's robe, I believe the reason his conscience bothered him is because David realized at that moment he had thought, even if it was for a millisecond, he thought, I could kill this man and I would make it to the throne. I would have the crown put on my head if I would just stab him, an easy stab. He'd be dead, he'd be done, and then I would take the throne of Israel. But then David realized, I'm not going to get there like that. I'm going to get there. There's a, there's, a, there's a process that needs to take place, and I'm not going to speed the process up if it means having a lack of integrity. So we take off where David's conscience bothered him. We are in verse 6. You can open up your Bibles, 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. Here we go. David went back to the cave after he cut Saul's, the hem of Saul's garment, and he said, May the Lord keep me from doing any harm to my master, the Lord's anointed. I must not harm him in the least because he is the anointed of the Lord. Let me stop right here and tell you two times David just said, the man who's treating him bad, the man who's trying to kill him, the man who's not doing a very good job in that position of authority is anointed of the Lord. 
We love to talk about how we are anointed, but let me tell you, if somebody is a child of God, even if they're making mistakes and not doing right, they are also the, the Lord's anointed. It's amazing how we always think, well, if they're making mistakes, then God needs to deal with them and, you know, promote me. But we all make mistakes. We all have issues in life. And David recognized there was something important about the position that Saul was in. He went on to tell his men, he said that he convinced them they should not attack Saul. And Saul got up. What did he get up from? He left the cave and he started away. Then David went out there and called out to him, Your Majesty. Saul turned around and bowed to the ground in respect and said, Saul, David just bowed down in respect to somebody in a position who's making a lot of mistakes and doing him wrong. That's like a, a Democrat bowing down to a Republican because the Republican's in a position of authority over them or vice versa. It's like a white person bowing down to a black person because of that position of authority or vice versa. It's like an American bowing down to a, China, a person from China because of that position. Here's the point I'm making. It doesn't matter what they're doing right or wrong that you do or don't agree with or do you like or don't like. What matters is their position of authority and God is big on respecting authority. God is very big on respecting authority. Your boss, the people that, that fight for our country, the, 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 our, our leaders, our political figures, you may not like them, you may not agree with them, but we are called to respect them. Just like if you were in that position, you think you wouldn't make those mistakes. You might not make those mistakes, but you'd make different mistakes. And would you want people to disrespect you and turn their back on you and treat you bad? No, David respected that position of authority. He said, Saul, why do you listen to what people say? I'm trying to harm you. Verse 10, you can see for yourself in the cave, the Lord put you in my power. Some of my men told me to shank you, but I said I would not harm you in the least because you are the one whom the Lord chose to be king. Look, my father. Remember, this is David's father-in-law. Look at this piece of your robe that I'm holding. I could have killed you, but instead I cut it off. This should convince you that I have no thought of rebelling against you or harming you. You're hunting me down to kill me even though I've done nothing wrong to you. Verse 12, may the Lord judge which one of us is wrong, for I will not harm you in the least. You know the old saying, I want you all to read this one phrase with me. You know the old saying, where are we at on here? You see it? Ready? Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to tell you when to do it. Y'all get ahead of me. Ready? Read it now. Go. Evil. Here's what he was saying. If a thousand pe if you're gossiping about me to a thousand people and I gossip about you to one person, it's still evil. It's the same sin. doesn't matter how big or small. If, you're, if you attack my, my character or you make fun of me and then I just come around here and I make fun of you, even in the least, it's the same sin. David was saying, I'm not going to become you, the very thing that I hate. If I do any evil against Saul, I'm becoming the very thing that I despise. And I'm not going to stoop down to your level. Even though you're my enemy, even though you've done me wrong, I'm not going to become you because if I do anything evil against you, then I become the very thing that I've been complaining about that I don't like. Look at what the king of Israel is trying to do. He's trying to kill. Look what he's chasing, a dead dog, a flea. The Lord's going to judge and decide which one of us is wrong. May he look into the matter, defend me, and save me from you. Everybody say, God is my defender. Verse 16, when David finished speaking, Saul said, is that really you, David, my son? He started crying. You're right and I'm wrong. You've been so good to me while I've done nothing but evil to you. Today you've shown how good you are to me because you didn't kill me, even though the Lord put, you in, put me in your power. The Lord bless you for what you've done to me today. I'm sure that you'll be king of Israel and the kingdom will continue under your rule, but promise me that you'll spare my descendants so my family's name will not be completely forgotten. 
David promised that he would. Saul went back home, and David and his men went back to their hiding place. Like, let me take a minute before we go into the topic today and tell you this. Why did David's men go back into their hiding place, even though Saul just repented and said, I'm sorry? Why did David um, have a conversation with him? I could have killed you, but I didn't. Saul's like, you're right, I'm sorry. I can't believe you've been so good to me. I, I'm, so, I'm going back. I'm not going to try to kill you. Saul just spent all this time trying to kill David. Now he repented, and David went back into the stinky cave, went back to hide, and saw, why didn't David go back to the palace where he was from? Why didn't he go back to his hometown? Why didn't he say, yes, I'm a free man. Nobody's trying to kill me now. I can go do what I was supposed to do. Why is that? Here's why. David was wise enough to know the difference between forgiveness and trust. This is a big thing for Christians. Christians get this so out of balance, forgiveness and trust. David said, I forgive you for what you did. I forgive you what's going on, but I don't trust you yet because you just tried to kill me. You've been trying to kill me for the past several months, and you think just like that I'm going to go back to the palace, sleep with one eye open, and think you're not going to try to kill me? Forgiveness and trust. Let me tell you about forgiveness and trust. Forgiveness you have to do immediately. You have to forgive immediately. I don't care how bad it hurt. I don't care how evil it was. I don't care how much they offended you. You have to forgive immediately, but you don't have to trust immediately. Trust is earned. See, I got Christians over here that, that if you do them wrong, they will cut you off and they will never speak to you ever, ever, ever again. There's no building trust. There's no being friends. They're done with you. Man, that's so out of balance. Then I got Christians over here that say, oh, that uncle abused you when you were younger. Well, you got to forgive and we're still going to go see him at Christmas. Are you an idiot? Well, they, you know, I know that they stole from me, but I'm going to forgive them and put them back in that position. Dummy? No, 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 no. You have to forgive. I don't care how evil it was. You got to forgive, but you don't have to trust right away. You earn back trust. You build trust with people. And David knew the difference. Saul, I don't trust you quite yet, but I do forgive you. So here, in, 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 in pre preventing demotion, part four for your notes, we're going to talk about this today. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return evil for evil. The more good we do, the higher we go in God, the more, um, the more successful we become, we will have enemies that come against us. You have enemies at school, even down into elementary school, middle school, enemies will come against you. Um, it doesn't matter how old you are, you have enemies. The, the devil's not going to roll out the red carpet for us to fulfill our destiny. There's going to be critics that are going to criticize you and talk about you behind your back. There's going to be co-workers that are going to attack you, make fun of you, attack your character. There's going to be uh, relatives that are going to send you nasty emails or say mean things or judge you uh, in a very critical way because of the way you raise your kid or the way you spend your money or something. And it happens over the holidays as well. People get so bent out of shape about things, but there are going to be enemies in your life. How we handle these enemies can affect us in a great way, either positive or negative. Really, the enemies that come against you isn't what destroy you because we have God on our side. He's our protector. It's how you handle these enemies. Um, there's even going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Let me tell you what a wolf in a sheep's clothing is. The devil will send people that look like a sheep. You can't tell the difference a lot of times because they look like a sheep. A sheep is a member of a church. A sheep is a Christian. And a wolf can be dressed up like a sheep and come in and attack you. And the goal of a wolf is to get you away from the sheepfold. They want to get you out of church. They want to do whatever it takes, fill your mind up with gossip, say something negative, get you thinking, do something to get you out of the sheepfold so that, the, 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 that they can attack. They don't even know they're doing this. They don't even know they're doing it. 
But they're a wolf in sheep's clothing, and their intent is to get you away from the rest of the sheepfold in a place where you're very vulnerable, and you're no longer in church, and you no longer have friends and things like that. Now, how we handle these enemies is very important. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Never return evil for evil so that you may inherit a blessing. Every time evil is done against you, every time somebody talks about you, every time somebody attacks you, I believe that Satan gets very happy and I believe God gets very happy. Here's why. Satan gets very happy because he wants it to be a negative cycle. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them. They hurt you, you hurt them. Then maybe this relationship hurts you, so you leave that relationship and you, you still have that hurt on the inside, so then you hurt this person. Then they have that hurt on the side and they hurt this person. Then you go from this job because you didn't like your boss and you screamed and yelled or they did you wrong or whatever, so you go to this job and then that's something you carry that with you and then they hurt you. And the devil gets so excited because he wants you to pass it down to your kids, pass it down to your friends, your next job, your next relationship. But when an enemy attacks you, God also gets very, very happy. Here's why. From the second your eyes open up in the morning, God is waiting. The Bible says he never slumbers nor sleeps. He's waiting to bless you. He's waiting for a seed to be sown. He's waiting for you to do something where he can give you a reward. You are his child. You have his favor. And he wants to be good to you. And he says, every time an enemy comes against you, God gets so excited. He says, yes, this is going to be an opportunity for me to bless them. This is going to be an opportunity for me to reward them. They're going to inherit a blessing. All they got to do is don't talk about the enemy. Don't live bitter about what happened. Just give me that person. Let me handle it. And not only will I bless you, but I will take care of that enemy myself now how we handle that determines which side of the coin we're on what the enemy wants or what God wants think about David David did nothing wrong to Saul up to this point David um, risked his life to defeat Goliath then David plays the harp while Saul is filled with demons all night long. And this is how David played the harp, just like this, by the way. And I do, all of my, I do all my own choreography, too. And so David played the harp, and I can imagine his fingers were blistered and bleeding, but he did it all night long while Saul slept. David becomes a captain in the Israelite army, and he defeats Saul's enemies. He defeats the Philistines, one after the other, bringing peace to Israel. And here, Saul tries to kill David with a spear several times, chases him through the mountains. He discredits David's name. He talked 3,000 people into attacking David. That'd be like nowadays if somebody got 3,000 Facebook friends or whatever to attack you or block you or delete you or talk about you or whatever. 3,000 people that David was once serving with are now attacking him. All this Saul did. And David cut off a piece of Saul's robe, and a few minutes later in verse 12, I love this translation, David said, look at the piece of your robe that I'm holding. I could have killed you, but instead may the Lord avenge me of your wrongs. My hand will not touch you. Let me tell you what David just did in a very calm, um, very bold way. He said, I'm not going to allow you to continue to abuse me, but I'm not going to attack you either. This is very big, especially for some of you ladies. Um, uh, David was saying, listen, I'm not going to let you keep treating me like this. I refuse to let it happen. I'm not going to let you talk down to me like I'm a dog. I'm not going to let you walk all over me all the time. I'm a child of God. You're no longer allowed to do this. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm going to be kind, respectful, but it's not going to happen. But at the same time, I'm not going to attack you. I'm not going to fight against you. I'm not going to scream and yell back to you. I'm not going to cuss you out. I'm not going to tell three people about how bad of a person you are. I'm not going to go call my mom, your mother-in-law, or whatever. However, however I can feel better to get back at you, I'm not going to do it. But I'm also not going to allow you to do this anymore. 
Very, very bold stance. Even David's enemy, King Saul in verse 17, knew, David, you're more upright than me. You paid me back good for my evil. The Lord is going to reward you greatly. Here's my question. How many of us in this room right now are anointed to be in a higher position of authority or promotion or finances or blessings that you aren't even aware of? God wants to bless us. He wants us to inherit a blessing, but we're too busy wasting our emotional time and energy trying to pay back the souls in our life trying to think of how we can get them back, how mean they were to us. I can't believe they did this to us. We love telling three people about it. And the whole time, God's just sitting back saying, when are you going to give that enemy to me? When? I heard a story about this little old grandma. She was a Pentecostal woman. She grew up in a Pentecostal church, served all of her life in her Pentecostal church. And uh, every morning, she, she didn't have a lot of money, and she always trusted God. But every morning, she'd go out on her front porch And she would just say out loud, declare, Lord, thank you so much for always blessing me. Thank you for always providing for me. You're always a good God in my life. Every day without fail, she would do that. Every now and then, this atheist woman that lived next to her would come out of her house and begin to make fun of that little Pentecostal grandma. She'd point at her and laugh. There's no such thing as God. You're wasting your time. You don't know what you're talking about. It never stopped that little old grandma from always thanking God for always doing good things for her. One day, the atheist woman thought she would play a trick on the little old grandma, so she went out and bought a bunch of groceries, put it in a bag at the, at the Pentecostal grandma's front porch, and then she runs and hides on the side of the house waiting for the grandma to come outside. As soon as the little old grandma opened up the door, she saw the groceries, and she got so excited. She said, Lord, thank you so much. I knew, I knew you would provide for me just like you've always done in my life. The atheist woman comes running out the corner, screaming and yelling, Hi, I told you there was no such thing as God. God didn't get those groceries for you. I bought those groceries and put them there. That Pentecostal grandma put both of her hands way up in the sky and said, Thank you, Jesus. Not only did you provide my needs, but you made the devil pay for it too. The point is, (laughs) God wants to make the devil pay. God wants to deal with these enemies himself. And I think about a lot of times, like with my kids, you know, my two youngest ones, Asher and Selah, they're very close in age, so they fight a lot. And when Selah, you know, hits Asher, Asher can hit her back, and if he does, there's nothing I can do. He's just gotten her back. Or Asher can come to me and say, she hit me. I can reward Asher for not getting even with her. I can reward Asher for coming and talking to me. And then because I love Selah, I want to deal with her in the best way possible because I know what's best for her as her father. God knows what's best for your enemies. God knows what's best for you. He wants to bless us, but we have to do our part and give him our enemies. Do you know in Mark chapter 3, for your notes, it's not up there, but just write it down. Mark chapter 3, the religious people criticized Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath day. Listen real close, okay? (laughs) The religious people criticized him. They were okay with him doing something right. They just didn't like the day that he did it on. They thought he should have done it on Tuesday rather than the Sabbath day. The point is this. Some people's intentions are to misunderstand you. That's their intention. You want to try to win them over. You want to try to tell them your heart. But they actually are looking for a way to misunderstand you. 2,000 years later, people are still trying to misunderstand Jesus, intently doing it. You know, Jesus had the most problem with the religious people. Above every, and I find the same thing. I, I, don't, I don't really get it. I don't understand it in my life as well. I never have a problem with atheists. Never. 
I never have a problem with alcoholics, never have a problem with drug addicts. They'll, they seek wisdom, they ask questions, and you know, I can post a devotion on Facebook, there's no problem. The people that are the most critical of Christians aren't atheists, it's other Christians. It amazes me how the people that will attack Christians the most are other Christians. I mean, it's kind of it's, 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 it's sad. It's, but it's like, it's like they're looking for a reason to find how we're not unified. They're looking for a reason to find how we disagree. Why not find things that the, the, that other Christian is doing right, the things that you do like about their ministry or what it is they're doing? Um, the first time Billy Graham ever went to England to preach, it was over 60 years ago. And when he got there, the press was so negative towards him. They showed up with cameras and microphones. They said, we don't want your religion here. We don't need another minister over here. We don't want you bringing us this stuff. One cameraman put a microphone right in Billy Graham's face and said, how dare you justify coming to our country in a huge ocean liner when Jesus rode a donkey? Billy Graham looked right in the camera, got right in the microphone and said, if you find a donkey that walks on water, I'll buy it. <laughs> Mother Teresa said, people will criticize you for doing good, but do good anyway. You know, Thomas Edison, it took him 2,000 fails until he invented the light bulb. 2,000 times he tried, it didn't work, tried, it didn't work, tried, it didn't work. He had so many critics over the years that would made fun of him. All this effort he put into it, on and on it went. Finally, at the end of his life, a reporter came to interview him, and they said, Thomas, tell us, what do you think about all the critics you've had over the years? He didn't say one single word. He walked over to his desk, and he flipped on the light bulb. The point is, is that our life can talk back to our critics many times. If you're doing what you know God's called you to do, it doesn't matter who's for you or who's against you. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible talks about putting on the full armor of God. I know you know that scripture about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, sword of the spirit, belt of truth, on and on it goes. It's interesting, and don't put the scripture up there yet, but in Isaiah 59, the same armor that God wears is the armor we get to wear. It's actually called the armor of God. It's not just for us. God wears the shoes of peace, belt of truth, uh, shield of faith, him of salvation, sword of the spirit, on and on. God wears the same armor that we wear. However... In Isaiah 59, where it talks about God's armor, there's one piece of armor listed that God gets to wear that we are not allowed to wear in Ephesians chapter 6. One extra piece of armor in Isaiah 59 verse 17, it says this, God wears a coat of justice and vengeance with a strong desire to set things right and to punish and avenge the wrongs that people suffer. In other words, we don't have to get our enemies back. God's wearing his cape of justice. Just like you picture Batman or Superman wearing their cape. Every time God puts that on, we can take a deep breath, walk back, and let God fight our battles for us. Um, whenever we try to get even with our enemy, we've actually taken God's place on, our throne, on his throne. Now, I wrote this in a way because normally whenever I put points on the board for you to write down or memorize... I write it in a very, um, I, th I think, a very easy way to understand, easy way to remember. I try to kind of make it rhyme and use different words to make it sound good. But when I put this on the board, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that with this. This is the raw version of what came out of me. And I did that because I wanted to explain it in a way, hopefully, that you'll never, ever, ever, ever forget. Anytime somebody does us wrong and we feel like we have the right to talk about them or to attack them or to scream back at them or to cuss them out or, what, or whatever it is, 
what we're doing is we're saying, God of the universe, not just of earth, but the whole universe, you have your throne where you decide how far the sun is from the earth. You decide who gets promoted, who doesn't. God, you run everything. You decide how far the ocean waves come in and how far they go back. And God, I have this enemy in my life. So God, I'm going to move you off of your throne just for a few minutes, just for a little bit. Just get off of your throne. Allow me to sit on that throne while I decide what this person deserves. I think they deserve for me to talk about them. I think they deserve for me to attack their character. I think they deserve for me to scream and cuss at them. God, get out the way. Let me sit on your throne while I take care of this person in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever, as long as I live on earth and in heaven, I don't think I ever want to sit on the throne of God. Does anybody else want to sit on that throne and ask God to move up? Well, then we got to learn how to give God our enemies whenever they come against us. A true story I read, I'll kind of close with this, but it touched my heart this past week. This boy was uh, 14 years old, and he was um, at his house, and his father was an alcoholic and abusive dad. At the age of 14, he'd already witnessed his dad come home drunk and beat his mom and verbally abuse her several times over the years. Finally, he thought he was going to put a stop to it. 14 years old, his mom and his dad are fighting. His dad came home drunk, and the boy gets right in the middle of the fight, tries his best to protect his mom. It doesn't work. It was a bloodbath. The dad beat him half to death, threw him out the house, told him to leave, and never, ever, ever come back again. As a side note, I wanted to tell you that our homes should be places of peace and encouragement. Those two words are very big, peace and encouragement. Do whatever you have to do to make your house a home of peace and encouragement. That may mean changing the decor. That may mean getting you a pet, getting rid of a pet. It may mean writing the law down, literally writing the law down and putting it in front of somebody that causes strife in your home. Whatever it possibly takes, no matter how long it takes, how many counselors you have to go to, your home should be a place of peace and encouragement. And this young boy did not have that. He left his home at 14 years old. True story. And he spent the next year kind of living on the streets, trying to find a way to survive. And at 15, he decided he was going to kill himself. He was done. He was so mad at what had happened. He didn't have a family anymore. So bitter, so angry. So he climbed the tallest building in his hometown. And he was just about to jump off the side. And he told how he heard a voice, not out loud, audibly, but deep in his heart. And it said, don't do it. I will be your dad, and I will protect you for the rest of your life. At that moment, he decided to step back off the ledge, and he was crying his eyes out. He said he felt this warm peace he had never felt before, and he forgave his father at that moment. He decided he wasn't going to live bitter, wasn't going to live angry. He was going to give him to God. Twenty years goes by. He put himself through high school, lived from one friend after the other. He ended up becoming a minister. Over the years, he tried to reach his family, his dad, his mom. This was before there was internet. He could not get hold of it, didn't know where they had moved to, where they were living, if they were still alive. One day, he's preaching at 39 years old, preaching a sermon in his church. And out the back doors, all of a sudden, in the middle of the sermon, his father comes walking in. His father takes a seat at the back. At the end of the service, the father comes down to the front to the altar. He asks his son to forgive him, and he invites Jesus to live in his heart. The whole congregation applauded. Everybody was crying. After the service was over, the father and the son went back in the office to talk. 
the father told how he had spent his whole life, childhood, living with an abusive and alcoholic father as well. In fact, he talked about how he got passed around from family to family to family of people trying to protect him against the abuse of his dad. I told you that story to say this. Hurting people usually hurt other people. This is a big counseling term. If you ever go to counseling, you'll always hear this phrase, hurting people hurt other people. Now, I did not say this to tell you that it's okay how that person treated you. I did not say this to tell you, well, that's the reason they hurt you. Got to let it go because they've been hurt before. I didn't say that. I put this phrase on the screen to tell you the enemy wants you to take it to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next friend, to the next marriage, to the next relationship, to the next job. Because the enemy knows hurting people usually hurt other people. I'm asking you today to leave your enemies at the altar. Hebrews 10.30 says, Vengeance is mine, M is capitalized, meaning God. I will repay exact compensation. I will judge, solve, and settle the cases of my people. You know, in one sense, Judas played a more important role than any of the other disciples. We celebrate Mother Mary. We celebrate the angel that came and brought the good news. We celebrate the other disciples. But Judas who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, played a very, very, very important role in the life of Jesus. It's so interesting to me and so sad that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Every day, Jesus would pour into his disciples and Judas. He would preach to them. He'd wash their feet. He taught them. He provided for them. He loved them. And the entire time, every time he looked Judas in the eyes, he knew, this man's going to betray me. This man's going to sell me out for money. This man's greed is going to cause me so much pain. But not once did Jesus try to talk him out of it. Jesus never said, Judas, one day you're going to get offered 30 pieces of silver. Don't do it. It's going to cause me so much pain. I love you. I love you, Judas. Please don't do it. Not once. Here's why. Without the betrayal, there would have been no crucifixion. Without the crucifixion, there would have been no death. Without the death, there would have been no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would have been no redemption. Without the redemption, there would have been no salvation. Without the salvation, you and I wouldn't have a chance in hell to get to heaven. Because the man sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, you and I now have access into heaven for all of eternity. If you ask Jesus in heaven, he'll tell you, it was good that Judas betrayed me. I believe our destiny is not tied to what our enemies do to us. Our destiny is tied to what we do to our enemies. In other words, we have God's protection. We have God's favor. We're children of God. No enemy can destroy us when our faith is in him. The Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. It doesn't say the weapons won't be formed. It says they'll be formed, but they won't prosper. Our destiny cannot be destroyed by the enemies that come against us, but our destiny can be destroyed by if we go against our enemies. Luke 6.32 says, Bless your enemies and pray. Now that word bless doesn't mean take them out to lunch and hang out with them. It means to speak well of your enemies and pray for those who mistreat you. Amen.